1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17 are our text this morning. Uh, I don't know how many of you looked at your calendars back in January and you noticed what day various holidays were this year. Uh, but uh, it's fantastic to have Valentine's Day on Friday. That gives you three days, men, to be as loving as possible. Three days. Uh, some of us need three days. Uh, some of us, I won't go any further, three days. We've had the chance to think about love, and literally, as providence would have it, we come to this passage in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, that are most certainly about love, but actually tell us that sometimes love is the wrong answer. Guys, don't get excited. You're not off the hook for anything. But sometimes love is not the right answer. Last week we looked at very encouraging words that John spoke to the believers at a church most likely in Ephesus, modern day Turkey, a church as we have mentioned before, perhaps the size of this section over here. A church that in the last number of months, if we read between the lines, and next week will give us more information, A church that, if we read between the lines, had experienced recently some sort of split because of false teaching. A false teaching that had believed that there was a Jesus and there was a Christ, but they weren't really the same person. Now, we have to stop thinking like 21st century Americans to dive into that, but we're not going to go there this morning. We'll just say... The church had, we think, most recently been through a split because of false teaching. One of the seeming uh, effects of that false teaching was to believe that Christians were actually above the world and so could participate in the activities without being uh, uh, damaged in their soul. And so the words that we read a little bit earlier today and we read uh, last week about overcoming the world put a, a biblically corrective spin on the reality of our relationship with the world. And then John, after telling us that by the word of God abiding in us, we can overcome the world, he tells us, do not love the world. Do not love the world. These verses are most certainly familiar to many of us, and we'll talk about that familiarity a little bit. But what I'd like to do is answer a few different questions this morning, and we're going to start with the question, what is love? What is love? I'm going to answer that with a Super Bowl commercial. Some of you watch the Super Bowl for the football. Some of you watch it for the commercials. And some of you watch it for both. As a pastor, I was incredibly intrigued to find out that one of the commercials in the Super Bowl uh, that was produced by New York Life Insurance gave us a lesson that pastors have been talking about for years. And it's the different types of love that the Bible uses and different types of love that the ancient Greeks used. Here's the amazing thing. In 60 seconds, they said better what some pastors can say in 30 minutes. And you're like, can you be as good as the commercial? I'll read for you the commercial and you tell me. The ancient Greeks had four words for love. The narrator 
in the advertisement explain. The first is philia. Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Insert Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Next, there's storge, the kind of love you have for a grandparent or a brother. The third is eros, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. And the fourth kind of love is different. It is the most admirable. It's called agape. Love as an action. It takes courage, sacrifice, and strength. We've heard that before so many times. We've heard that that is the love that God has for the world. He so loved the world that He sent His only Son into the world. That is the love that Jesus had for us. God, excuse me, God demonstrates His love for us. And that Jesus died for us when we were yet ungodly. It is the love that, yes, husbands are supposed to have for wives because that is the love that Christ has for the church. But that kind of intentional, self-sacrificing, devotion of the will love is the sort of love we are not supposed to have for the world. I'll say a lot of times when I read these verses or hear these verses, I think to myself, but I do love the world. I do have an uncontrollable urge to do what society says is cool or fun or enjoyable or pleasurable or just relaxing. Or, 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 or peaceful feeling, I have an urge to do that. But that's not the love that John is writing about here. He's not talking about us just falling into love with the world. He's talking about us pursuing the world. He's talking to us about making time for the world. He's talking to us about arranging our lives around the world. He's talking about us having a steady devotion to the world. It is, I think we could rightly say, the difference between being tempted and sinning. I think many of us feel as if Attracted, being attracted to the world is disobedience to this command. Now, I think this command has teeth, but what I want to do in, in looking at the command itself is differentiate the command from the temptation to disobey the command. Because I think there are times we can be unnecessarily guilt-ridden because we like a nice car. We can be unnecessarily guilt-ridden because we do want to look at the screen. And we'll differentiate what John is seeking to say here. He's telling us that the love that we should have for God that sacrifices, that devotes our will, the love that we should have for God that arranges our schedule around His priorities, that is the sort of energy we should not put into the world around us. Which begs the question, the second question, what is the world? What is the world 
I want to read for you a number of definitions from a number of different people, and I'm doing this on purpose, not to put you to sleep with words ad nauseum, but in these multiple definitions, different people will hear these different definitions, and for some of you, uh, one will click, and for another group of you, another one will click. And so here is how the world has been described by those who study the Bible far longer than I have. The ESV Study Bible says that the world is a world system opposed to God. Now, let me just back up for a moment. Here's why we need to define it, because the world is not trees and skyscrapers, mountains and deserts or rainforests or even people, because at the end of six days, God looked at everything he had made and he said what? It was very good. So, so the world is not the created order, the world that John is talking about here that we should not love is the world that we humans have remade in imitation and we have twisted and we have used. Another has said the world is the invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, His Word, and His people. A writer from the 1800s, a pastor from the 1800s said uh, that the world is fallen human nature acting itself out in the human family. Preacher just a decade ago said that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. The last one I'll read. Worldliness is the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. These are definitions of the world that various ones have given to us. John gives us a description of it in verse 16. He says, all that is in the world, uh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions or the pride of life, these things are not from the Father but are from the world. God has given to us appetites, but our sinful nature has turned them into desires. God has given to us houses and He's given to us raw materials to make automobiles and boats and guns and dishwashers and microwave ovens. And what we have done is we have found our satisfaction in these gifts instead of our satisfaction in Him the giver, and this is the world. The world is described here, and in the 1600s, John Bunyan illustrated the world for us. It's easy for you and I to think that the world or worldliness is simply a, a late 20th, early 21st century problem. But the world obviously was a problem 2,000 years ago when John wrote somewhere around 80, 90. Worldliness is not simply a modern thing. Worldliness is something that uh, John Bunyan wrote about in the 1600s. He called worldliness a place named Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. A place where you could go and just enjoy and have fun regardless of of morality or immorality. In fact, the more immorality, the more fun it seemed to be. It was a place of 
uh, not simply of color, but in excess and a, a, um, um, an emphasis on color and outlandish style, a place where titles were given away repeatedly and often, a place where you felt good and anything that made you feel bad was a problem. If you've seen a, 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 a movie, a live action or a cartoon rendition of Vanity Fair, you probably have some scenes running through your head. If you've read the book, your own mind imagined Vanity Fair. I don't think there were any carnies in Vanity Fair. It's not just like a carnival. It was something extravagant. I think of more the idea of Times Square. Times Square or the Strip in Las Vegas. Those are our modern day Vanity Fairs. Where the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life rule the day. Those things didn't exist 2,000 years ago, and yet John still warned against the world. It's interesting to note that, that the world and worldliness is something that a variety of, of religions are concerned about. Up in the Poconos, about a century ago, there was a camp for Quakers as uh, they would use that camp year in and year out in the 20s, there began to be some dissension among them about whether or not they should allow card playing and drinking at their camp. The discussions became so intense that one group split from another and started their own camp. Now, I must say there's great irony in pacifist Quakers splitting so that they can have what they want. Now, we Baptists know we're pretty good at splitting stuff. I mean, that's just in our DNA. My point being that worldliness has always been a matter of discussion, argument, and disagreement. What we're not going to do today is go through a list of things that we could consider worldly, not because that wouldn't be helpful necessarily. Many of you have grown up with lists like that. Some of you are hearing about worldliness for the very first time today, and you wonder to yourself, what's the big deal with playing cards? It's a subject that has a wide variety of applications. What I want us to focus on today is the fact that John doesn't give us a list of what worldly activities are. He goes deeper than that, and he takes us to the motivations for actions. He takes us to motivations that are worldly. Just like Jesus goes from the command to the command behind the command, if we could put it that way, John goes behind the command and he says, what do you really want in life, what will you love? What will you set your devotion upon? Will you set it upon your desires? Will you take the appetites that God has given and expand them beyond their rightful boundaries? And will you arrange your life to go get those? things. The appetites, sure, for food, the appetites for romance, the appetites for security, the appetites for leisure, the appetites 
for hard work, the appetite for a job well done. All of these can be taken to excess and hence make us worldly. And if we love the world, John says the love of the Father is not in us. We cannot love God and mammon. As Jesus said, we cannot serve God and serve mammon. What is the world? It is these three desires. Desires that well up from within us and desires that push in from outside of us. Desires that speak to us in ways that are hypnotic and alluring. The ancient Greeks had a a, a myth, a story of creatures called sirens. Creatures called sirens who lived on an island in the Mediterranean. The sirens would sing as they saw ships go by, and the sailors would be enchanted by the beauty of the music, and they would steer their boats toward the island so as to find out who was making this wondrous song. They were enchanted, they fell asleep, and as their boats followed their course to the islands, the boats crashed on the rocks. It's said that those who saw the sirens described them as hideous-looking creatures. What an apt description of temptation. It sounds beautiful from a distance, but when you experience it up close, it is hideous and destructive. And this is the desires of the world as well. They have the veneer of beauty. They have the song and the sound of happiness. And when it's too late, you hit the rocks and the damage is done. And so for John to write to these people, don't love the world is not a heavy-handed thumping. It is an invitation and a warning to safety. It is pause. It, is, it, it gives us time to pause and to consider our own interaction with the society that we will go back into this afternoon and this week. How will we go back into society? And why will we go back into society? This is what Jesus wants us to do from John 17. Because it is an extended passage, we're not going to put it on the screen. I'll seek to read it as most interestingly as possible. Jesus said, to his father in prayer. But now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that my disciples may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth, living in this world. John commands us to not love the world, but behind John's command is the prayer of Jesus that we would not love the world either. Do you love the world? Maybe it's been a long time since you thought about that. Maybe it's the first time that you've thought about that. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've thought to yourself, you know, that was part of my Christianity a decade or two or three ago, but I'm kind of not there anymore. My friend, we come to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 to remind ourselves that we must be there. How we define worldliness and what the particulars are may change from time to time. What society deemed X 40 years ago is not the same meaning today, perhaps. But the command remains to not love the world, and however we may particularize it, there is, generally speaking, a very, very important decision for us to make. Because whoever loves the world does not love God. So I come back to ask you, are you loving the desires of your flesh? Am I loving the desires of my eyes? Are we loving, setting our devotion on the pride of life and possessions? Taking these three verses in isolation, we could find ourselves condemned and rightly guilty. Taking these verses within the context of 1 John, we find there is hope. Before we go to that, we want to note further why we should not love the world. Why not love the world? There are two reasons given. You may have noticed I skipped a part of verse 15. That is that the love of the Father is not in him, though I have mentioned it. Here's why we should not love the world, because it is opposite of love for God. It is opposite of love for God. As John does so many times within this book, he gives us A or B, and our minds are crying out for middle option C. And he doesn't give it to us. Either we are devoted in our will to God or we are devoted in our will to society and its values. And so, if we say we love God, we will choose to not love the world. I'm not saying we will not be tempted. I'm not saying we'll not be attracted. John, in other places in this letter, understands the power and the allure of society. It is not the temptation that we are saying should be uh, uh, gone. It should be our, our giving in to that temptation. So it is opposite the love for God. Perhaps it is time for us this morning to, to think for a moment about what we really do or who we really do love. Are you a Christian this morning? 
One of the ways, there are a variety of tests in the book of 1 John, and one of them is the love test. Many of us think that whether or not we are a Christian simply comes from what I think and what I say, but John has been showing to us that whether or not we are Christians shows up in who or what we love, who or what we set our will to, who or what we arrange our life around. Earlier in the series, we talked about whether we struggle or whether we surrender. Do do we struggle with the world? Do we struggle and fight against society? Or do we just simply surrender to society and its values? So I would ask you again, because there are only two choices Do you struggle with society? Do you struggle against society and its values? Or do you simply surrender to society and its values? We could easily think of teenagers who are so impressionable. Yes, teens, we need to ask you, do you struggle against the pull of the world and the push of its values? Or do you surrender to it. Yeah, we can ask teenagers, are you a Christian? And one way you will know is whether or not you struggle against worldliness. But adults, we cannot simply look down on teenagers. For we ourselves should be fellow strugglers against worldliness, should we not? And if we find ourselves simply surrendering, we should ask the question that John is asking us to consider. Do I really love the Father? Do I really love the Father? The other reason that we should not love the world is in verse 17, because the world is passing away along with its desires. And whoever, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. This is where our series from Ecclesiastes flows right into what John is talking about here. What is Ecclesiastes bemoan? Ecclesiastes bemoans the fact that that a man will spend his lifetime accumulating treasure, a bank account, land, houses, in our time. Uh, I don't know why I pick on boats. I have friends with boats. If you have a boat, I'm not against you. I don't think I'm secretly jealous of boats, but people get boats, and some of you have armories, and, and, and we get all this stuff, and, and in Ecclesiastes, the, this, this prosperous man leaves it to his son who did not work for it, and he wastes it. And, and the writer of Ecclesiastes says, this is vanity. And what John is saying is that this world is passing away. Jesus said that, that we could lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, Matthew six nineteen. We could lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We could do that, but we'd be foolish because this world is passing away and the desires of it are passing away. Look at fashion in the last 50 or 60 years. It changes each decade, and I think sometimes now it's accelerating, and it changes every few years. My wife doesn't let me wear the stuff that used to fit. Those ties I had from the 90s, they fit perfect. She's like, you can't wear that anymore. 
because the world is passing away and that style passed away with that world. She's here today. She's working in nursery. I'll hear about it later. She can't give me the eye. Yeah. We understand the world is passing away. We, we, uh, you might collect a Studebaker, but you don't want to drive one. Right? Cars are better now. They run better. They look better. Gas mileage is better. The world has built in obsolescence, so what was cool a decade ago is no longer cool, and you've got to buy something new. So that takes our money away. But John is going deeper than the effect on our pocketbook when he writes that the world is passing away and its desires. He's going to what it does to our souls. Jesus asked the penetrating question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Right? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? I think it's fair to extend the question and loses his children's soul. What will it profit a man to gain a one night and lose his own marriage? We could continue to ask the questions about so many things in our lives that seem as if we could grab them, hold on to them, and enjoy them. And it runs through our fingers like sand. And yet we continue to pursue them. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is what we as humans naturally seek. Something that will last. We don't seek it well, but we do seek it nonetheless. This is where we will find it. If we do the will of God, what is the will of God? John 6.40, Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. The will of the Father is that we look at Jesus and trust in Him. 1 John 3.23, which we'll come to in a few weeks, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, His Son, and love one another just as He has commanded us. You know, Jesus is most likely speaking to an unbelieving crowd in John chapter 6 and verse 40 when he tells them to trust in the Son. And so we call out today to those of you who are not believers in Jesus Christ to trust in Jesus who died in your place. But when John writes 1 John 3.23, he's speaking to a group of people who are already believers, and he reminds them that believing in Jesus Christ starts in the past, but it continues in the present. Trusting in Jesus Christ is the command to obey, and and obeying this command is doing the will of God. 
And so those who are trusting in the crucified and resurrected Jesus are doing the will of God and will abide forever. First John 5, 4-5 are helpful verses as well. They say, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith in Jesus, not simply something that was good for us when we were kids, something that was good for us at the moment of our conversion decades ago. But my friends, this is the way that we will overcome the siren song of worldliness that hits us day in and day out, hour in and hour out, minute in and minute out, click in and click out, screens always in our face somewhere, giving us the values of a society that is passing away. And that's why we sing about what we sing every Sunday morning. To remind ourselves not simply of what is eternal, but to remind ourselves on how we will hold on to that which is eternal. One wise pastor from years ago further reminded us of another way to not love the world, and that is to love what God loves. See these words from Robert Candlish pastor from decades ago, if we love the world as God loves it, we will have no heart for loving it in any other way. Early I, earlier I quoted to you John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now God's telling us not to love the world. We're putting these two verses within their context. What if you and I love the world the way God loves it? What if we looked at a society that is running itself headlong into the rocks of hell and we thought, oh, that someone would rescue them? And when Jesus was sent by the Father, the Father was loving the world. What if we love the world that way? instead of being allured by the world and society's values, instead of being disgusted about how bad society was, what if we got into society as Jesus did with the message of Jesus and with the love of Jesus and with the prayer of Jesus and we loved society the way God does? then I think we'd be on our way to loving the Father instead of loving the world. You may say to yourself, I'm caught up. I do love the Father, but it's too strong. Go over to 1 John chapter 2 and look at verse 1. John knows 
says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. I write these things to you so you don't love the world. But if you do love the world, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the satisfaction for our loving the world. Not for ours only, but all the other lusts that the world does. You can repent this morning as a believer. You can confess where you've fallen. You can confess where your struggle against society resulted in a losing round. You can confess when you had a bad quarter. You can confess that. And you can find forgiveness. Because as the word of God abides in you, verse 14, you can overcome the evil one. And as you mess up, you can find forgiveness. Because 1 John 1, 9 in this very same book tells us he is faithful and just. He is consistent. He is every single time willing, if we confess, to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Worldliness is a problem that's probably far more insidious than we realize. And it's far less list-like than we think. And though our love for the world be great and our love for the Father be weak, His love for us does not diminish one bit. He calls you to seek His forgiveness and He wants to work within you to make you strong so that you can overcome the world because it's passing away. And he wants to abide with you forever. Let's bow to think and pray. We typically conclude with silent prayer started by the pastor praying. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to pray Jesus' words again for us. Then we'll have silent prayer. And then Eric will lead us in a couple of songs that remind us of our love for Jesus. For as our love for Jesus grows, our love for this world will diminish. Hear these words of Jesus who prayed for you and for me. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, we are not of the world just as Jesus was not of the world. So may we be sanctified in the truth. Our Bibles are truth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has sent us into the world. May we be sanctified living in it.